Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today, we speak with Ethan Perlstein. Ethan is the CEO of Perlara, a scientific discovery public benefit corporation that works with families, advocacy groups, and biopharma companies to develop cures for rare diseases. Perlara challenges the conventional approach to drug discovery through its scientific platform for evolutionary pharmacology. We talk about Perlara's approach to rare disease drug discovery, the power of working with families and foundations, as well as organic intelligence and what we can learn from biology. So let's get right into it. I'm joined today by uh, Ethan Perlstein, who's the CEO and, and founder of Perlara uh, PBC. Perlara is the first public benefit corporation focused on precision drug discovery. Uh, but Ethan, why don't I let you tell us a little bit more about your company and, and how you guys got started? Sure. I'm glad to be here. Happy to do so. So the, the company actually got started uh, four and a half years ago under the name Perlstein Lab because I wasn't very creative at the time uh, emerging from academia for my postdoc and never really had done a startup before. We eventually rebranded to Perlara, but the purpose of the company was to create a rare diseases platform company focused on therapeutics as our initial sort of go-to market modality. But ultimately, we're interested in being a, a disease modifier company. And the real inspiration for the company was my joining Twitter in the sort of thick of the postocalypse, um, which was my training period as a postdoc, and the sort of grim job market that was ahead of me in academia uh, decided to take refuge in Twitter. And sure. it was actually on that on that platform where I met a bunch of rare disease advocates for the first time and heard their stories and tried to understand if the science that I was interested in doing could connect to their real world needs. And so that really was the genesis of Pearlstein Lab and, and, and today Pearlstein. So you guys are, are focused on, on rare diseases, any in particular, or uh, tell us about your platform and, and how you kind of pick what you work on. Yeah, so we talk about ourselves as a rare diseases platform company, which means we really want to take on all, all comers when it comes to rare. And that doesn't, so I should be more precise and say that, you know, when we talk about rare diseases, we're really implying rare genetic diseases. And that's the bulk of rare diseases as we know them. I mean, there are some rare diseases that don't have a, a clear genetic origin, but about 80% of them do. And in fact, um, of that of that 80%, I would say the vast majority of those um, are monogenic diseases. In other words, there's a single broken gene somewhere in your genome, and that's the, the, the culprit uh, underlying the disease. And it's usually, you know, there's some complexity in between, but, you know, from a mutation to a, a disease presented in the human being, you know, you've got um, the various tissues and organs that might have different sensitivity to the loss of that of that gene function. But the bottom line is that we broadly define, you know, rare monogenic diseases as a three to 4,000 um, disease opportunity. And of course, there are opportunities beyond just each of those individual tiny rare diseases because no disease, no, no area of biology is an island, really. And so that means no rare disease is an island. And so if you make inroads on one rare disease, you might be able to, to reposition that same drug for related rare diseases. And in fact, you might even be able to expand the opportunity to a common disease that shares similar biology 
with that rare disease. So yeah, our mandate is really about rare genetic diseases, of which there are thousands. Um, and right now, 95% of those rare genetic diseases have no FDA or, or no no approved uh, drug at all. So there's an obvious desperate need to um, do a lot of drug discovery very rapidly. And, and so when you think about tackling a, a new disease area, where do you start? I presume you start with genetic data. Um, do you all generate that data in-house? Do you work with partnerships with hospitals or academic clinical centers? How does that part of the equation work? Yeah, so to kind of sum up our scientific platform, it's really about creating patient avatars uh, for these families, organizations, even rare disease researchers who are academics who are not personally affected but might work on disease, and even impact investors uh, who are not even connected personally to disease but want to see um, improvement. We, we build patient avatars for for these rare disease groups. And then we do drug discovery. In fact, we do drug repurposing first, and then we do drug discovery sort of in parallel. And, and that process ultimately culminates in testing uh, molecules that come out of those patients' avatars on patient-derived cells. And those could be you know, simple fibroblast cell lines. Those could be more complicated induced pluripotent stem cell lines. And those could even be organoids where you try to reconstruct a patient's kidney or pancreas or, or lung. Um, so it's really about building these patient avatars. And what I mean by that is taking simple animal models, what, what genetic this is called model organisms. So right. yeast, worms, flies, zebrafish, and, and mice, of course. Um, but mice are sort of the most complex and the, the, mo- the least cost-effective of all the animal models. So we focus on the small ones, in particular the invertebrates, the worms, and the flies, and, and the yeast, where we can you know, very quickly create patient avatars. So you know, we don't generate genetic data ourselves. Patient groups or organizations or whatnot come to us and present us with, say, in the simplest case, say a family presents us with an exome, a clinical exome sequencing report you know, for their affected child, where it uh, describes what the variant are that are causing the disease. And so that's usually the input information. And we can then use existing model organism genome databases to, to ask and query, you know, is this particular rare disease gene conserved in the simple animals? And if it is, and more often than not it is, um, then we can ask a second question. Well, has anyone ever studied, you know, maybe not these particular mutations from this patient, but has anyone ever made a disease model for this for this gene in, in worms and flies or, or the model orgs? Mm-hmm. And and more often than not, more often than not that that's the case too. I mean, sometimes we have to go from scratch, but for, more often than not, there's a foundation to build on. And as soon as we've established that, um, we can then take those existing models that have been published get them in-house, start working on them, and then we can make, create a next generation of patient avatars that reflect the actual mutations that our partners care about. And in one day in the limit, we, we can actually maybe upload a patient registry from a particular rare disease community and simply clone all those variants into our suite of model organisms. And you'd sort of have an instant set of, of animal models to go play with for either drug repurposing, drug discovery, biomarker discovery, gene modifier discovery, you name it. So yeah, so the, so the bottom line is about creating patient avatars in these simple animal models so that our entire drug screening process is in vivo as opposed to in vitro uh, from the very beginning. Now, I I love this. You know, my academic background, I started as kind of an invertebrate zoologist, and and I love the fact that you guys are- Oh, cool. Not, not afraid to kind of tackle human health in, in organisms that are, you know, 300 million years, or in the case of yeast, you know, over a billion years evolutionarily removed, but, you know, recognizing that genetic conservation is pretty strong. Um, how do you think then about mm-hmm. defining disease phenotypes in these organisms? So it's not surprising to me that the genes might be conserved, but if you create a null of, of a human disease gene in, in a fly, do you have a priori expectations what the phenotype might look like? 
Yeah, so we can start with like a really, the, the simplest case where the phenotypes correspond one-to-one because not only did the genes correspond one-to-one, we already established that when we when we said, is there an orthologue, we asked, is there an orthologue there? But there's conservation potentially up through sort of layers of complexity, you know, from the, the DNA variant as, a, as that is expressed in a, in, a, in a protein with a different function or loss of function, and then that, how that manifests in terms of cell physiology and then tissue physiology um, and, and sort of so on, so on on the line. Can you repeat that question? No, I know we can edit this back. Yeah, the, the question was, is really about, like, you know, the genetic conservation is obvious to me, but the phenotypic conservation. All right, phenotypic. So, so yeah, let me, let me jump back where I was. So, yeah, so, so thinking of a kind of clean example where the phenotypes sort of match because we think at the cell level and at the molecular level and even at the tissue level, there's probably correspondence as well. I can give you a clean example of that. So, for example, take uh, Usher syndrome, uh, which is sort of most common uh, genetic, inherited form of genetic deafness and blindness in people. So you can create a fly, an Usher fly. That's deaf. Huh. Um, and so if you look at the structure of the inner ear, uh, the invertebrate inner ear and, and sort of the, you know, the mammalian inner ear, I mean, there are some, some level of homology there. Now, if you move over to the eye, you know, the invertebrate eye, is, insect eye is a compound eye, you know, it's sort of nothing like our eye. But so, so, so there you can start to see how there's a homologous structure and it's in terms of it's performing the same function across the species, but it's, it's constructed differently. There's probably some ancestral parts, but there's a lot of divergence or there's something specific to the arthropods or one particular group of species and not others. You can kind of take that idealized case where, you know, you take a structure and a whole process and it really does line up sort of from molecule to tissue across species. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of your best case scenario. And then you sort of have a sliding scale and a gradient where sort of the opposite extreme would be where the, the molecular architecture looks quite conserved. But what manifests and bubbles up at the phenotypic level looks nothing the same across the two species. That happens too. And so what I would say is you sort of have to, you have to sort of interpret these results on, you know, in each case. And so when it comes to, for example, diseases where you have a failure to thrive in the kids, in the humans, then you can sort of ask, well, do you have a quote unquote failure to thrive in the, in the animal models? And that could mean, you know, do they reach developmental milestones at the appropriate time? Now, in a developing drosophila, a developing fruit fly, you know, it's going through larval stages, it goes through metamorphosis, you know, none of that's comparable between an insect and mammalian development. However, both animals go through development and that developmental process can be delayed or there could be lethality during that. And so that part is conserved, right? Whereas the actual manifestation of development is clearly different in each species. So I think you have to sort of think about it creatively where you can accept that there will be these one-to-one phenotypic correspondences Mm -hmm. that jive very well with the genetic one-to-one correspondence. And then there'll be this sliding scale where things get, where the phenotypic correspondence dissolves or is not readily apparent because homologous structures aren't there. But, but I would say that ultimately you can convince yourselves that the molecular architecture is really driving all these phenotypes. And so it doesn't really matter what phenotypes bubble up to the surface. If the right. same molecular architecture is disrupted and the same relationships are conserved and, and the effects of those changes in, in, the, in the direction of the, you know, if this gene no longer, is, gene A is no longer impinging on gene B and, and both of those genes are present in the, in the systems, it doesn't, does it really matter what the, the phenotypic manifestation is? I mean, to some degree it does, but in some degree we think it, it may not, especially if you're taking a bunch of models where if you try to take the worm, the fly, the fish, and the human, and you ask, is there a one-to-one correspondence, a line that runs through all of them? And for some phenotypes and, and areas of biology, you can, um, but in others, it's going to zigzag, it's going to diverge from, you know, with one species, another species is going to look more similar to another. And so ultimately we say, if you take a portfolio approach and you have a basket of models and a bunch of phenotypes, then you sort of query the system and then you can hopefully interpret at the end, you know, that you, you have a sensible 
you know, therapeutic thesis. Um, so there is no hard and fast rule, but it's a great question and it comes up all the time. And, and again, I would, I would use like that Usher syndrome genetic deafness yeah. example as a way to say that's the, that's the place where people are most comfortable, right? Because they want to see that the, the animal manifests the same exact problem as the human. And, and there's no tolerance for sort of differences in the specifics. But I, I think um, ultimately we need to learn empirically where the phenotypic correspondences work and where they break down. Undoubtedly, you guys do a, a lot of biology. I'm interested um, generally speaking, but also kind of the, the nature of this conversation series about how you think about using data to advance your platform. So what role do, you know, big data, both big data and small data, you know, smart data, what role do data play? How much of this are you guys able to automate? Um, you know, how much of this do you, are you able to kind of build on the shoulders of, of past work? Yeah, so we definitely build on the shoulders of past lab, lab automation work. Um, and we're, all, we're trying to uh, break new ground when it comes to automation for whole animal phenotypic screens. But, you know, we've taken advantage of the fact that you can, you can basically build a drug discovery company, a drug screening company, um, with just a few pieces of equipment. Now, those are very expensive pieces of equipment, but, you know, five, 10 years ago, either those were just completely unaffordable to a startup, or you had to have four pieces of instrumentation do what now, you know, that, that, that would do what now fits into the footprint of, say, one machine. Mm-hmm. So we definitely embrace lab automation and continue to push it for our custom needs and, and whole animal model screens. In terms of sort of data uh, and data science and, and, and big data versus small data, you know, for rare diseases, if, if a gene is not really well studied, then there's basically no knowledge base. So right. it's not even that there's small data, uh, it's that there's no data. <laughs> um, and so that's why you need to generate data sort of de novo. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of been the, the phase we've been in is, is generating uh, what we were calling our first, our first, our first relational database 1.0. We call it ArcBase. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and basically ArcBase is a relational database that, you know, relates you know, these animal models um, across different species, you know, representing a particular disease gene. And you have the phenotypes that ensue in all those different species um, and all those different models. Um, and then you have the effects of small molecules on those phenotypes. And, you know, in some ways it's a similar relational database to what recursion has done. There are another company, and they used to be sort of a purely rare disease company. Uh, now they've sort of expanded their purview, but you know they're fundamentally also doing phenotypic screens, but but with cells, and they're building a relational database, you know, that relates these cell models, genetic perturbations they make in the cell models, um, and then the effects of small molecules on those on those perturbations. So you know it, it's very analogous, but as again, our edge is that everything we do is all the data is coming from f- fully in vivo systems. And so ultimately, ArcBase 1.0 is really just now, it just really represents the, the state of affairs after two and a half years of, of bootstrapping a portfolio of, of ProQuest, which are partnerships with patient groups and, and families. Yeah, um, I think we're, we're, in a, we're in a position now where um, we, we've launched enough of these programs where we have now a corpus, <laughs> a data corpus. Um, and so we're now starting to actually assemble a data science team around it. Uh, but, that, but those days are just still pretty early. I definitely want to come back and, and dive into the, the topic of ProQuest. But since we, we're talking a little bit about data, again, the, the theme of, of this podcast is nominally about um, artificial intelligence and, you know, the real uses and the the hyped up use cases of it in in precision medicine and, and drug discovery and so forth. Perlara talks about something called organic intelligence rather than artificial intelligence. Tell us what you mean by organic intelligence. Yeah, it goes back to that point I was making where you know what happens if the knowledge base of of a disease gene and and the biology around it is is effectively zero. Um, there's you you can't you know there's no data to um, there's no training set to to train your algorithms or your machine learning. And so organic intelligence refers to this idea that 
you actually have to rely on the biology to teach you. Um, and it seems so old fashioned nowadays and it seems so antiquated. But, um, you, you know, we, we, we say there's really no substitute for actually discovering and, and working out this biology. And so organic intelligence is really sort of obviously a, a slight tongue in cheek play on, on or I guess a, a reaction and a pushback to the hysteria of, of AI today. Um, and it's just sort of reminding people that, you know, it, it really is the brain power in the case of these rare diseases. It's the brain power and the emotion quotient of these dedicated researchers mm-hmm. um, and these families that are, that are creating data, creating information where it didn't exist. And then ultimately, AI and, and, and computation will, of course, uh, seep in. And of course, once we've uh, built a corpus, and of course, once there's uh, enough momentum, then, then you know, what we call AI will, will, will certainly, I think, you know, be less, less hypey. Um, yeah. But I think there, there, you need this sort of foundational step first, which is build the knowledge base on top of which you can now start you know, putting together um, you know, new, new efforts and, and making new connections. So I think tongue in cheek, it's, it's, not, it's not meant to suggest that I'm some kind of Luddite or some kind of anti-technologist or anti-AI. It's just I'm anti the hysteria, and especially sure. as it's applied to uh, rare diseases, where you know it, it, there is no sort of simple shortcut. I wish there were. I wish I wish you could just you know you could stick some algorithm on this problem, and then you'd have a solution for for every rare disease. But I just don't just don't think that's going to happen. So, mm-hmm. um, in fact, you can look at some of the diseases that we've made a lot of progress on through our ProQuest process and using patient avatars, and you would ask, what would happen if you had taken those that same disease pathway, that same disease gene, and tried to run it through a, a purely cell-based type of phenotypic right. system? And, and, the, and the answer is you would have gotten zero out of it um, because the disease is such that unless you pick exactly the right kind of cell types and create the right tissues in, in 3D culture, you're not going to recapitulate the disease biology. And, you know, unless, unless it's a skin disease, using a fibroblast is not, it's not really the appropriate cell type, but it is super easy to work with, which is why everyone does it. Yeah. So I think ultimately we will embrace AI, but it's, it's after we've created these knowledge bases uh, for, for each of these disease communities using organic intelligence or AI, or, sorry, or, or OI. And then transitioning to a point where we, we now actually have big data. Because right now there's nothing big about the data set, and that's okay because we still have we still have discoveries to make. There's still, there's still a lot there's still a lot of unknown unknowns. Now this resonates a lot with me. Again, you know, my background is was very much kind of anachronistic organismal biology, and and that's certainly where my initial scientific curiosities come from. I my soapbox throughout mm-hmm. graduate school was always about being able to pick. You know, you should pick it, whatever the right organism is for your question of interest, and not feel constrained by this one or that one that happens to be uh, the fad. And and I guess today the, right. the fad is forget the organism. Let's just you know mine the data. Now don't get me wrong. I'm also quite bullish on the power of data science to help us, especially for diseases for which there are a lot of data. For Jeannie Alice, anyway, a huge focus for us from our inception has been engaging the human expert in that domain, right? So how do you think about communicating the science, whether it's the data science or otherwise, so that the people who know the most can can weigh in with their lifetime of instinct and intuition? Now, that resonates with me because it's, it's, it's in some ways we're trying to, you know, the, the patient groups that we work with, the, the researchers um, who, who and the scientists who kind of commit themselves to these niche problems, you know, they they can move mountains. And so I agree, it's, it's, it can, can you, how can you most effectively extract and harness, you know, all these, these, this amazing, amazing passion and, they, and, and unending energy, right? I mean, these folks are not going to quit. And so I think, yeah, and all the rush to make everything AI and, it, and the rush to make everything sort of predictive, I mean, we're, we're losing sight of the fact that, you know, there is a process here that's very, very, you know, rare disease is a very people business. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about relationships as much as it's about data. 
Yeah, no, that's certainly something I've, I've witnessed through our collaborations, for example, at Baylor College of Medicine with labs that work on, on the undiagnosed disease network. And, exactly. You know, and we work with labs that, for example, are involved in the Cordoma Foundation and others. You know, the, the families that are motivated to cure these diseases are really the heroes here. They're the ones who get it done. Right. So if you ask me, do I want a, some, some shiny AI in a box, right, or the promise of some, some, some amazing machine learning algorithms, or do I want, you know, a couple of these parents and advocates and researchers in a room with enough resources to do some damage. I mean, the experience of my last five years has taught me I I would take the latter every day of the week. (laughs) Tell us more about ProQuest. So ProQuests are, I guess, your, your framework for doing these partnerships, but you can tell it better than I can. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of our version of turning the traditional pharma model on its head. I mean, you can think about the evolution of, of rare disease, um, you know, medicine, you know, over the last 35 years, really, really only com- coming into being with the, the passage of the Orphan Drug Act, because in 1983, when that was passed, you know, there was basically zero hope for any family who was diagnosed with a rare disease. I mean, yes, you had the, you had telethons and you, you had Jerry Lewis and you had examples of how, you know, crowdfunding you know, before the internet effectively, but you know, that wasn't anything that was benefiting super ultra rare diseases because those aren't even being dis- being diagnosed at that point. Those were still probably all considered undiagnosed. So then what would have happened to those families 30 or 40 years ago? They basically just listened to what the doctor would have said, which is just enjoy the rest of the time you have with your child. That was usually the parting words of the doctor. And so the only thing that could ever happen is if private industry got involved and, and they only got involved because the government gave them incentives to the Orphan Drug Act. And so you can look at the example of say Genzyme, you know, which should you know, created the first enzyme replacement therapy. And, you know, you can think about the value of that franchise over the over the lifetime of its patent. And you can think about the cost it took to create Genzyme and, you know, what it took for Henry Termier to raise all that funding. And, and then ultimately, that was really the only option available. Then you fast forward to sort of post, you know, year 2000. And I think you now sort of see the next phase of the evolution, which is basically, I think, venture philanthropy 1.0. And that's really typified by Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, groups that have been working, you know, certain patient advocacy groups that were working in Duchenne muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular atrophy, and others. And again, these are probably not the ultra rare groups. These are the what we call medium rare, right? So maybe a thou- thousands of patients, maybe ten- more than ten thousand patients in the U.S. We're not talking about like a hundred. And because you know the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation has that many patients, it has a big donor pool to draw from. And mm-hmm. so they sort of brought in this next wave, which is 30 years ago, the parents just sat on their hands and, and prayed somebody came in and put in a lot of money to do this and required the government to make incentives. Then people realized, oh, there is an investment opportunity here, it's, and we'll call it venture philanthropy hybrid. And you can see the success of that. I mean, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation sold its its rights and interests in, in the Vertex uh, CF drug franchise for like three and a half or $3.3 billion. And it was right. probably on an investment of you know 50 to 70 five million, let's say. So again, that was much better than the situation in the early 80s when it was completely hopeless. Now some of these groups could do something, but only the largest groups could mobilize, the largest rare disease group. Now fast forward to today, and you have now we call sort of venture philanthropy 2.0, which basically I think is, is just joint venture, right? Mm-hmm. We go from the very beginning, which is in someone else's hands completely, the patients are completely powerless, completely dependent on someone else. Then you move to a phase where some of the larger, more sophisticated rare disease groups can now mobilize their own resources and, and have skin in the game. And now we're at a point where, because of where, where we are with the, the state of the internet, where we are with the state of social media, where we are, just everything that's changed in the last 15 years with from just the cost of DNA sequencing and, and the proliferation of diagnoses and so on. Now we live in a world where a single family 
family that may be only a tiny cohort of 12 other families in the world known at a given time, they actually can do something, right? You know, even 15 years ago, they, those groups would have been completely paralyzed because they wouldn't have been able to connect to each other. It would have been one family here, one family there, one family there, but now with Twitter and Facebook, they can all find each other. So I think that really is the evolution that we're seizing on. And the ProQuest is really just embracing where, where these families are today, which is no matter how small and, and tiny these groups are, they can have access to the world's information through the internet. They can find researchers, they can raise funding, they can ignore the doctor who might say, go spend the rest of your child time loving your child while they're still here. And, and so I think that's what ProQuest is really all about is saying, okay, we want to meet these families where they where they are. And we want to say, if they're raising money and putting together SABs and they're trying to race toward treatments and cures, then we want to be right there with them in the trenches. And so the ProQuest model is really saying, okay, everyone talks a big game about patient centricity. Let's make it real. Let's really put patients at the center. And what that means is take their dollars and, and combine it with Perlar's know-how and resources. And then we do drug discovery with them. And, you know, what we do together is, is, is joint, joint technology, what we create together, you know, depending on how much money they put in, how far they fund, you know, there'll be some kind of upside coming back to that partner group because, you know, that foundation or that LLC even, you know, has, may have a, a, another objective after we get a first line therapy and maybe they want to start developing a second line therapy or second wave therapy, or maybe they want to focus on other objectives that they might have, like getting patients covered if their insurance doesn't cover the payment and other, other objects. So we think that ultimately patient centricity, we think the ProQuest really is the true manifestation of patient centricity because it says, we're not just going to take your data. We're not just going to use the resources you, you know, or the models that you've put together or, or things that you've done. We actually want to do this as a true partnership. And in the limit, we would say, we want to partner as, as co-development partners. In other words, let's split the cost and then we'll split the proceeds. And I think that really, especially for ultra rare, that's the trajectory we're heading on. So for families and groups where there's a hundred or fewer patients or a couple hundred maybe total in the world, we think this co-development model is really ideal. And that's what ProQuest is, I think, setting us up to do. Fantastic. And so some of that is funded by your own resources. I've also you know, seen in the news, you've had some, there are some philanthropic uh, donations. How much of your time and energy is spent kind of rounding up, you know, additional uh, money resources for the, for the ProQuest? Well, I mean, that, that's basically, that is our full-time job, right? I mean, yeah. so we're constantly getting requests and, and launch, you know, our launch, uh, our la- online launch form is, is filled out and, and then that, that pings our director of R&D and then that starts a process mm-hmm. and a conversation. So ultimately, you know, we're really, all of our moves are driven by the market, right? We, mm-hmm. we you know, we, we blog, we tweet, we go to conferences, we, we get our name out there. And then ultimately, you know, families talk about us. The rare disease yeah. communities talk a lot, not in one rare disease tribe. And so word gets out. And yeah, and so eventually we get sort of pinged from people and, and then we decide how to move forward together. And, you know, in each case, the patient partner, uh, the ProQuest partner is funding the research. And so, yeah, we obviously negotiate a contract. We negotiate a research plan, you know, fully transparent, fully, fully accountable. The one thing I'm, I'm real curious about is I'm really interested to know what your team looks like. It seems like you guys must have a huge range of expertise, both in-house and I guess with a, a network of advisors. Yeah. So the core team is really scientists, you know, folks like me who had postdoc experience and, you know, might be in their mid to late thirties. Um, we've got folks who just actually were sort of thin in the middle of folks who are maybe just straight out of PhD. Um, we're starting to fill in those ranks. And then we have a bunch of sort of junior scientists, pre-PhD folks. And, and these people are drawn from different genetics communities for the most part, genetic model organism communities. So we've got a yeast team, a worm team, a fly team, obviously have a human cell team. And part of what we want to do after our next raise is, is build out the chemistry capability, uh, gene editing capability in-house, uh, mm-hmm. some chemistry capability, data science capability. But yeah, right now I would say we are basically all geneticists, molecular biologists um, of that of that kind of training. And we usually um, have you know, strong background in one or more of the, the model systems we work on. 
And, and what's your most advanced uh, drug candidate to date? How far have you guys actually been able to move this? Yeah, so we our inaugural class of ProQuest was launched uh, in the beginning of 2017. Um, the first ProQuest ever, uh, or basically our first ProQuest is with a group called the Gray Science Foundation for a disease called NY1 deficiency, which is a congenital disorder of deglycosylation. Um, our second ProQuest is actually with uh, PMM2, which is a congenital disorder of glycosylation. So it's related to, even as the name clearly suggests, it's related to NY1. And then our third ProQuest, of that, or the third of that initial batch was for a disease called Neiman Pick type A. And so we've made the most progress on those three. We've, we've also worked on some other lysosomal diseases like Neiman Pick type C, Gaucher, Nucleidrosis 4. That was in the context of a collaboration with Novartis that we're now transitioning to a kind of ProQuest, basically, with, with individual uh, lysomal disease families. But yeah, we, we have a pretty strong franchise in lysomal diseases and congenital disorders of glycosylation. And I would say our two uh, congenital disorders of glycosylation, deglycosylation, NGLY1 and PMM2, those are the most advanced. We've identified through repurposing activities and through drug discovery, both generic drugs that can be sort of repurposed. Um, we've also found novel chemical entities that could be the basis of, of a second generation therapy. So we're in d discussions with partners, um, mm -hmm. with the ProQuest partners and with potentially third parties to now advance and exit the ProQuest sort of into a uh, late preclinical clinical ready stage. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, stay tuned because we want to be in the clinic uh, by 2020 um, for these initial ProQuest programs. So working very hard to, to make that happen. No, that's exciting. And so I guess the notion is you would either out-license or, or just bring in that third party as a kind of partner with the same philosophy. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, our plan is that ultimately in the limit, we, we, we want the option to either uh, in-house a ProQuest Mm -hmm. And sort of we can exit it to ourselves and because we see we see a, a, an opportunity and, and a path that we are very committed or very excited about. Mm -hmm. um, then it's sort of the, 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 nether, the next option um, before we're able to have the discretion to, to in-house programs before that would be sort of this co-development track, as I was right. mentioning. And then even sort of as more of a proof of concept, so maybe only the first or second ProQuest would ever do this, would be more of a standard sort of out-licensing uh, traditional deal where we find a third party who would price the, the assets and who could send a signal to the rest of the marketplace showing this is what the ProQuest is worth. Because obviously, if we price it ourselves and just buy it, um, it doesn't yeah. really send a signal as to what the worth was. And so we, I think, we think it's important to send that signal to show how much the ProQuest cost us to run. And those costs are usually paid for completely by the ProQuest partner. So it costs us, it, we didn't make or lose money doing the work. But then once we're able to sort of get to commercialization, then we can right. get an upfront and, and, an, and an exit um, that would be a multiple of what our cost was. Uh, and that's how we can sort of show how the economics of this will play out. I think the first idea is, is exit kind of proof of concept through a standard out licensing, then quickly transition to 50-50 splits, and then ultimately in the limit, be in a position to totally in-house programs and make them 100% proprietary. Yeah, no, that sounds fantastic. Um, ambitious, but, you know, totally within, uh, within reason when you think about the mountains that these families move. So, well, I think I could probably, you know, tie you up all day asking more questions. You know, one of the, the joys of running this podcast is it lets me be a bit of a fanboy. I get to reach out to, uh, <laughs> to entrepreneurs and, and scientists who I, I really admire. And, and Ethan, I have been kind of watching from from the bleachers watching Twitter and LinkedIn and, and you know, your company's website and the blogs and so forth. And this has been a real thrill to, to catch up. Thanks. Well, for you can't that. see it, but I'm smiling ear to ear. I really appreciate hearing that. Um, I love the opportunity to talk about what we do with folks who ask really good questions and, and know, know the inside and out. Um, really appreciate the opportunity. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time. Seriously, this was a lot of fun. This has been episode four of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.